last EQ of the semester. I can't believe it's already been a semester. I feel like we just, just jumped in and uh, thankful for what the Lord has been doing through this time, encouraged by you men being here and participating. Um, it's just encouraging to, to get to look at these topics and look at what God's word has to say about them. And as we do that this, uh, this morning, let's start off with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together. Uh, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for your word and the richness of it, Lord. Even as the psalmist says, your, your word is uh, more valuable to be treasured more than all the riches of the world. And Lord, nothing, nothing in this world can bring the same kind of benefit, eternal benefit uh, to our lives as your word can. And so I pray that we would have Heavenly Father, humble dispositions before you that we would be humble, contrite of spirit, and Lord, that we would tremble at your word, that we would want to know it, that we would want to submit to you as we humble ourselves before your truth that you have revealed and given to us. And so, Lord, help us this morning as we look at your promises. I pray that they would uh, just resonate in our hearts in helpful ways that would aid us in our godliness and our usefulness for your purposes. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, one thing I want to mention, I sent out an email uh, yesterday to the women because they'll be here already on Saturday. But Discovery is looking for uh, additional help just to set decorations out. So it's not one of those things like you would only be useful if you have a uh, decorating skill. Uh, that's not the case, thankfully, because... Um, I wouldn't be useful at all. Uh, but just bodies to help set things up. They have decorations that they want to put out. Uh, if you're available, we're going to start at 9 on Saturday. Or if your wife is available uh, to help out. Or if you have older kids that would be able to help out in that way. Um, any of that would be, would be great and invited. And if you are planning on being there, if you could let me know sometime today, uh, that would be helpful just so I can communicate to uh, Discovery Who's, uh, how many people we plan on having participating in that. I want to start, uh, let's go to your uh, laminated sheet under the resources section. And we didn't get to this last time. But want to walk through again the key events of the Old Testament. Just keep that fresh on our minds. Keep that sharp for us. And we're going to be expanding next semester on this diagram uh, just content-wise. So we won't get a new diagram, but we'll expand content-wise. And so if you have that handy, you can pull it out, take a look at it. This is really just a, a chronology of the Old Testament, key events of the Old Testament. And it starts at creation. God created all the world, created everything in it. However, in uh, where do we see the fall in Genesis? Genesis 3, exactly. Uh, Genesis 3, we see the fall. Man sinned. It gets to the point it's so bad that there's uh, the assessment of God over mankind is that their hearts were full of evil only continually. And so God brings about the flood as judgment on the earth. And yet he preserves mankind through Noah and his family. And he tells them as they land on Mount Sinai to disperse and inhabit the land and be fruitful and multiply. And what do they do? They disobey. They gather together. They seek to make a name for themselves and so God brings about a, a confusion of their languages, which brings about the dispersion that he instructed them to do, to go inhabit the earth, um, to spread out in the land. He brings that about through confounding their languages. And yet he gives a promise, and he gives that promise to Abraham. And that was 
for one man to become a nation, and through that nation, he would bless all other nations. In order for a people to be considered a nation, they need three ingredients. Those key ingredients are first people, constitution, and land. Well, God brings uh, Abraham and his family, or actually uh, Jacob and his family, or uh, thank you, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob and his family all into uh, Egypt, and uh, in there, they eventually get uh, uh, settled into captivity in the land of Egypt, and God uses that to grow them exponentially. They go from about 70 people to uh, 2 million in, in 400 years, and God frees them from captivity through a series of 10 plagues, and this is 1446 B.C., brings them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. At this point, they have roughly 2 million people, and that's the first ingredient. Then he brings them to Mount Sinai, uh, where they get their constitution. And uh, I said Sinai for the ark. What was the mountain that the ark, uh, not Sinai, the Ararat. Thank you. Yeah, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Okay, brings them to Mount Sinai for the constitution, which is uh, the law. God gives a, uh, Moses the law on Mount Sinai. And now they have their constitution. They disobey while, while Moses is getting the law. Um, they make a graven image and call it Yahweh. And so they make this golden calf and they call it, this is Yahweh. And God uh, admonishes, rebukes them for that and punishes them through a delay in the wilderness for 40 years where they're wandering in the wilderness. Uh, that generation passes. The next generation remains. They cross the Jordan. God tells them to enter into the promised land and to divide and conquer. And now they have their land and they are officially the nation of Israel established with their people and their constitution and their land. However, God tells them to occupy that land fully and they disobey. They don't occupy it fully. They refrain from driving out all of the nations. And as a result, uh, they don't experience the prosperity that God intended for them. And they begin going through various cycles of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. So they go through those cycles until it gets so bad there's total corruption in the priesthood among Eli and his sons. At this point, things are not going well for Israel. There's no king, no regard for the ark, no capital, no priesthood, no land. The Philistines have taken over, no theocracy. They reject God's role over them as a nation, and they say, we want a king like all the other nations. And so they want a king like all the other nations, which in essence means they want a king with the wrong heart. And so they choose for themselves Saul, who had no, no regard for the ark. He was disobedient. To God's promises and had a disregard for God or disobedient to God's instruction and had a disregard for God's law. So what did God do? He raised up a king after his own heart and that was David. One of his first acts was to go get the ark. He was obedient to God's scripture even though he uh, imperfectly. He had a reverence for God's word and his law. And then you have Solomon, David's son. He had a divided heart. There were times where he did well before the Lord, and there were times where he did poorly. And uh, over his rule, God brought peace and prosperity to the land. But there were three specific things that God gave to Solomon as instruction to avoid. And that was the accrual of horses, women, or wives rather, and money. And the reason for those was horses was like uh, accruing for yourself a large army, tanks. Horses were your 
um, your army. Women were, uh, or wives, was a way of forming alliances with other nations and creating peace with other nations through alliances. And uh, the warning from God was that these foreign women would turn your heart away. You don't need to go make alliances with other nations. You're, you're, I'm your God. I will protect you. I will set you apart as a nation to minister to all the other nations. And then money, obviously, um, is power. And so those things were to be uh, not sought after as a means of security for the nation. And yet Solomon did all of those things. And so the result was a split nation in 931 B.C., You've got Israel and the northern ten tribes, and then at that point you have Judah, which consisted of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Israel, the northern ten tribes, are taken into the Assyrian captivity in 722, and they end from that point. There's no um, future that we've seen yet for the northern ten tribes at that point. They're actually um, uh, inter intermarried and and kind of joined in with the Assyrian culture, and that's where actually actually you get Samaritans. They were um, Assyrians and Jews that intermarried, and they were considered half-breeds, and that's why pure Jews or, you know, non-intermarrying Jews would look, back, look down on Samaritans uh, at the time of Christ. And then you've got uh, Judah, who had some good kings and some bad ones, they entered into the first phase of the Babylonian captivity in 605 BC, but they had a future. God would restore them back to the land. There were promises for them that God was in control. He's not finished. He would provide atonement. There would be a future kingdom. Why exile in Babylon? Well, it cured them from idolatry. Babylon was an incredibly adulterous uh, nation. They had idols everywhere, on every corner, everywhere were idols, and uh just that, that saturation of idols uh, brought about a distaste for those idols to the people of Israel, gave them a respect for the law and hope for a future Messiah. And so they returned back into the land to prepare for the Messiah, Messiah to uh, rebuild the walls, set up the temple, uh, seek to purify the people. And we see that predominantly through Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra uh, took the lead in rebuilding the temple and Nehemiah took the lead in, in participating in rebuilding the wall <coughs> until Christ returns. So those are key events of the Old Testament. Uh, if you were to, to trace out uh, Genesis, or, or rather put it this way, if you were to go uh, the Pentateuch, where would the Pentateuch fall on this diagram? So the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where would those books fall in this key event. Anyone? Yeah, go for it, Andrew. Yep, right, right, as, right as they're getting ready to cross the Jordan. The end of Deuteronomy, you've got uh, Moses' commission to Joshua about entering into the promised land. And at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses dies, Joshua takes over. You've got a very, very short section at the end of Deuteronomy that Joshua writes. And then you go into Joshua where they, um, they, yeah, they cross the Jordan, divide and conquer, and so on. So great, excellent. All right, we can put that away. Uh, did everybody receive an outline on their way in for this morning? 
Excellent. You can turn to the first page of your outline, and as you're turning there, you can also turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to talk a little bit about shepherding our heart with the promises of God this morning in our remaining time before we split into groups. And before we talk about the specific promises of God, we need to spend some time talking about God's promises in general and what he intends in his promises for the believer. And as we talk about the EQ disciplines of shepherd your heart, shepherd your home, be faithful in ministry, um, the, the latter two of shepherding your home and being faithful in ministry that God calls you to, they really are founded upon our discipline to shepherd our own hearts first, to be diligent in shepherding our hearts. And when we think about shepherding our hearts, there can be a tendency to think, okay, I got to shepherd my heart. I need to do a quiet time. I need to make sure I spend time with the Lord in the morning. And, and that, that absolutely is a crucial part of shepherding your heart. In fact, if you don't spend intentional time with the Lord in his word and prayer, your heart shepherding will be hindered and will not be all that it should be. Um, and yet the entirety of shepherding your heart doesn't um, entail 30 minutes or an hour or 15 minutes or whatever, whatever it is for you that time. It, it, that's not the entirety of what shepherding your heart is. In fact, that time of, of uh, personal devotion to the Lord through shepherding your heart needs to actually overflow and fill and saturate the rest of your life in the way that you shepherd your heart. And when Proverbs 4.23 tells us to keep watch with our hearts or guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the wellspring of life, that all diligence isn't confined to a short period in the morning. That guarding or keeping is a military term that soldiers would use, and that keeping of watch is like a, a, a watch guard at night who is on full alert. The most difficult time to guard a castle or a, a um, fortress would be in the evening because you couldn't see well. And so a guard in the evening who's keeping watch with all diligence would be straining in their eyes to make sure they can see any possible threat that would coming in. And you can't do that. Okay, well, we only keep watch from the first hour to the second hour. No, you have to have guards there constantly to keep watch. And so it is with our hearts to think that we could guard our hearts for a moment and then coast in the keeping of our hearts the rest of the day is just foolishness. Nobody would guard something that's of precious value um, only within a certain time frame. There might be intentional precautions to enhance your fortification of something, but that enhancement is going to make the guarding of that something all the more intentional throughout the rest of the day or time that you're guarding it. And so that's how it should be with our hearts, an intentionality to guard and keep our hearts consistently. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about how God's promises fit into the guarding and the keeping of our hearts, the, the shepherding our hearts that has to take place. How do God's promises fit within that? And as we ponder the promises of God, we must understand the importance of shepherding our hearts with them. And that really starts with mind renewal. And the battle for your behavior begins with a battle for your mind. We are called to renew our mind. In fact, the very first thing that Paul talks about in response to the most consecutive, comprehensive expression 
of God's saving work in the gospel and what God has done through Christ in Romans. In chapter 12, he gets to, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world, but trans be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so this offering of your life as a living sacrifice and this separation and distinction that the believer is to have from the world actually comes through a careful guarding against being like the world, being conformed into the way of the world, but rather being transformed. And that transformation is to come by a mind renewal, a continual renewing of the mind that the believer is called to participate in. In Colossians 3, likewise, we see the call to take thoughts captive and to set our minds on things above. There's an intentional leading of your mind. We are never to be the victims of where our mind goes. We are to be the leaders of our mind. We direct our mind where it must go. We take thoughts captive. We set our mind on things above, on eternal things. We don't allow ourselves to be preoccupied with temporal things, with things of this world that are fleeting and past, but rather we set our minds on things that are eternal and substantial and actually bring glory to God. Philippians 4 is a wonderful section that talks about the importance of dwelling on things above and, and good things, things that are beneficial and spiritual and redeeming and have redeeming qualities. And so how do we grow in our ability to renew our minds? And, and how do we really train our minds to agree with God? That's where this starts as we seek to shepherd our hearts and as we seek to, to pursue righteous living that has to start with the mind. How do we go about that? How do we intentionally, intentionally cultivate that kind of life? so that we can live in the way that he intends us. Well, as we seek to do this, there's some things that we need to know right off the bat in relation to God's promises and how we renew our minds with God's promises and why we would do this. And so in your outline, we're gonna start with what must I know about God's promises? And I wanna look at 2 Peter. And we're gonna, we're gonna start with verses three and four and we'll expand as we work through these a little bit. But let's read together uh, 2 Peter chapter one. Um, and we'll kind of get a, a little bit of a head start. We'll start at verse two. <laughs> Excuse me. Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust so as we consider these promises of god and what they must look like as we bring them to bear on our lives uh, there's three things i want to talk about first as kind of a running start before we even get to the promises of god and that's first the reality that god's promises are trustworthy and as we look at this passage that talks about god's promises and his divine power being granted to us in this life and we ponder god's promises why are pro god's promises so important well first of all they are trustworthy god's promises are true uh, there's an instability there's a there's a um ability to compromise that we all face in our own promises we are not infallible we fail we don't love up to our live up to our standards how many times have you told your wife who's asked you to do something around the house i'll get to it this weekend 
and then that weekend passes, and then another one passes, and then you make another vain promise. Oh, you need help? Okay, I'll help. I'll help after this. I'll be home by five. Six thirty rolls around. Oh, I'm sorry, I just really got caught up. Our, our word can ebb and flow in how integrous it truly is. And there may be an understanding that, hey, when I say I'll be home by five, you understand there's variables. But, but God never compromises. There's no ambiguity in his promises. There's no, I said I'm going to do this, but I got caught up in this. Uh, the, you know, there was some other things going on on the other side of the planet I needed to take care of. Sorry, I didn't get to you. My, pro- my promises to you weren't fail. My commitment to you uh, wasn't true. I, it, it does fail. No, God's promises are trustworthy, and they're trustworthy because of him, because of the source of the promises. They're trustworthy because of his character. So when we see something like in First Peter chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 2, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. When we see that God has given us promises for a purpose, that, and in fact, that he has done this for his glory and for our sanctification, we can have full confidence in the, in, in that God will produce what he intends through his promises, that he'll be faithful in these things. And uh, I just want to reference a few passages. You can, you can listen and write them down if you'd like, but Psalm 1830 says this, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 18, verse 30. And when the psalmist said God's word is tried, that means it's tested and proven faithworthy. You could say God's word never fails. God's word is trustworthy. God's word is secure. God's word is firm. When God's word is tried, it just it means it is completely true. It is completely tested. There is nothing lacking in God's word. He is blameless. His word is true. It is trustworthy. And he is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? And those are rhetorical questions that have an obvious answer. If God says he's going to do something, of course he's going to do it. If God promises to do something, if God says he will do something, uh, will he not make good on that? No, of course he will. And we see this in the New Testament as well. In Titus 1, verses 1 through 3, Paul says this, Paul, a bondservant or slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. And so when we think about the promises of God, we must know that every single, every single promise of God is trustworthy. He just never fails. He never fails. He never lacks. What, what else must we understand about the promises of God? What else what we, must we know? Well, God's promises are purposeful. Uh, God has intention in his promises. Look again at verse 4 of Second Peter. 
For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And then we've got this so that statement, which is a purpose statement. So we understand what is the purpose that he's granted to us these promises. So that by them, and the by them is his promises, you may become partakers of the of nature, of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God has intention in his promises. These aren't just to make you feel good. These aren't for warm and fuzzies. This isn't to give us butterflies in our stomach. God has intention in giving us his promises and therefore our spiritual growth and our spiritual good. God intends his promises to have a a sanctifying impact on the believer's life. For them to partake in the divine nature, to escape corruption that is in the world by lust with his promises being a means of accomplishing this. The promises of God don't lead us to passivity in our pursuit of holiness. This isn't something where God's promises equal sanctification in our lives. And we just sit back and go, well, God promised this. God promised to complete me until the day of Christ. So I'm just going to go do whatever I want. That's not his intention. His intention is that his promises are an empowering means of grace that leads you to escape sin and temptation and to grow in godliness as you obey scripture's commands to be holy as he is holy you can actually have confidence in your ability to obtain increasing godliness with his promises as a means of helping you get there and so they give us confidence in our pursuit and in our efforts to be disciplined and to pursue holiness and to And to grow in our godliness is before him. And so God has a a purpose in his promises. It's our sanctification. It's our spiritual growth. It's our godliness. And so as we think about shepherding our hearts, uh, you can't escape the reality that to know God's promises and to renew our minds with God's promises is a necessity that aids us ever ever more in growing in godliness and the shepherding of our hearts. It's a necessity. And then lastly, uh, before we jump into the promises, God's promises are to be prized. God's promises are to be prized. How could you not? When you think about the trustworthy nature of God, that he never lies, that all of his promises are true, not only can God give wisdom in his promises, that all of his promises are rooted and grounded in his wisdom, but he actually has the power, the divine power to bring them all about. Right? God is supremely wise. That means he chooses the best possible means to bring about the best possible ends in every circumstance. Just think about that for a moment. The best possible means to bring about the best possible end. It's not only that his, his big picture plan is perfect, but every detail to get to that big picture plan is absolutely flawless. That's God's wisdom. If you just believe that, your life will be dramatically impacted. Every trial, every hardship, every bump in the road, every unexpected variable that enters your life, if you believe that God is in control and that God has ordained those things to bring about the best possible end, and not only is the best possible end awaiting you, but this is the best possible path to get to that best possible end, your perspective in the midst of those things will be dramatically different than if you doubt that reality. 
or don't believe that reality. And not only is he wise, but he's supremely sovereign, which means he's subject to nothing. He's in control of everything. There's nothing that unravels out of control. There's no rolls of paper towel that hit the floor and start rolling and you can't catch up with it as it just keeps going. Oh, it, oh. Or, or how many times have you done this? You start to drop one thing and you go to catch it and you knock over another. That doesn't happen with God. There's not a, oh, whoopsie, I got to go fix this. And then uh, there's some negative effects over here of things that got left or neglected or knocked out of control because I was trying to catch up with this mess. No, God is completely in control of everything. Nothing happens outside of his providence. Nothing happens outside of his ultimate will. And so he's trustworthy. And so as we ponder the reality that God is trustworthy and and in his promises, he has intention to make us more godly, to increase our holiness. We have to prize these things. We have to prize these promises. Look at what God has to say even more uh, from Peter, through Peter, in verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, and there we see the call that God's promises intended for our holiness don't call for a laxness but actually the call to apply all diligence in light of these promises. Uh, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, and how are they ours and increasing? Through God's divine power, in fact, Jesus' divine power being granted to us as we embrace the promises of God that are intended for our spiritual growth, and then we apply all diligence to grow in these areas of godliness, if those qualities are yours through those means and are increasing, they render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It should be terrifying to have knowledge in God or of God and be rendered useless. That's for somebody who loves to talk theology, who loves to talk about God, who loves to talk about spiritual things, and doesn't actively pursue godliness. But for the one who loves the truth of God, who loves to fixate on knowledge of God and his promises for the purpose of applying diligence to move towards greater godliness, that one is going to be found useful. We should prize God's word. We should prize his promises. And so what is Peter's response in light of this? Uh, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of God, our, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Listen, for a believer to not pursue these things, to not apply all diligence, this person's blind. They've forgotten what God's intention is for them in salvation. Therefore, brethren, and we see this instruction to be diligent again, be all the more diligent. So apply all diligence, grow in godliness, don't be blind, don't neglect these things, and in light of that, be useful by applying these things, and be all the more diligent, 
to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in the same way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So there's benefit in increasing godliness, but as you experience increasing godliness, you actually experience assurance of salvation, which is good for you as well. And it increases your ability to maintain holiness when you have a confidence that you indeed are Christ. Look at verse 10. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice such things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. It's not that our good deeds or our pursuit of holiness creates our salvation, but it expresses it. And it gives a confidence and it gives increasing godliness for us in Christ. And so we are called to trust the, <laughs> the promises of God. <clears throat> we can understand that God's promises are purposeful. They, God has good intention in them. And God's promises are to be prized. The believer is to, to long for these things, to be intentional about these things, to be diligent, to bring God's promises to bear so that we might maximize uh, what he would want to do in us by his grace. So with those things in mind, in mind, I want to talk a little bit about God's promises specifically. And we'll start looking at God's promise for, for the believer. And before we jump into these, I, I do want to mention, in pondering God's promises, there is some discipline that's required when we read our Bible. Not every promise in the Bible is for a New Testament believer, right? So God, not all of God's promises are for us today. That has nothing to do with the trustworthiness or validity of scripture or God's promises. If I promise my wife to take out the garbage, I'm not promising all of your wives that I'm going to take out your garbage too. As nice as you might think that is, as much wishful thinking as you may have, that's not, that's not the reality. And so to doubt God's trustworthiness because he promised these people over here this, what about me? That's just foolishness. That's not, that's, not how, that's not how life works. But God's promises to us are true. And so I've, I've squashed many's, many people's hopes and dreams when I use Jeremiah 29, 11 as the example uh, and you guys know it, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And many people who truly love Jesus and they want to serve the Lord and they love God's word, um, they find great comfort in this passage in the midst of hardships and trials going, see, God has a plan for me and it's not for calamity. And they miss the fact that this was God's promise to the nation of Israel in the midst of their rebellion his admonishment and judgment on them for their rebellion, and yet his promise that he's going to purify them in his time. At some point, he will take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, and there is a literal future for them that awaits them. And it's not for this calamity that's coming upon them now as judgment, but it's one of prosperity. So God gives this beautiful pro uh, promise that reveals glorious realities about his character and his love and his faithfulness and his commitment to his people, but not one that is for us today to go, oh, just around the corner, God's, God's purpose for me is one of, of success and not calamity and abundance. And so 
I can have hope in those things. That, that's, there's a hermeneutical issue there, hermeneutics, how you study your Bible, how you read your Bible. You need to understand, for whom are these promises? And are they for us? So there needs to be some considerations uh, when we think about the promises of God. To whom was God writing? Am I part of that group? Is this promise for me? Was it for them? Uh, if it's not a promise for you, that doesn't make it less valuable. All God's word is God-breathed and profitable for correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped, ready for every good deed. So just because the promise isn't for you doesn't mean it's not beneficial in your Bible. It reveals wonderful things about God and his faithfulness. And if you see that and you go, wow, look at the way God is committed to his people. Look at the way that God both punishes sin and provides restoration for his people. Look at the way that God has future promises in store that bring hope in the midst of calamity and hardship and judgment. How much more can I trust God when he's disciplining me, when I'm facing difficulties, when I'm in trials? How much more can I look to God's promises and know that he's a God of compassion and love who cares for his people and draws near to his people? So there's absolutely still implications of God's promises. Those promises just may or may not be for us personally. All right, with that being said, uh, let's look at Romans 8, 28. Very familiar passage for us that most of us probably do or should have memorized. It's a precious truth from God. This is for the believer. This is the New Testament believer can have full confidence in this reality. And Paul says in Romans 8:28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then keep reading. I want you to see this. So that's a that's an indicative truth, right? That's a that's a statement of fact that God does this. But keep keep reading. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So there we see another uh, progression of indicative statements. These are just truths. This is what God did. And it's amazing. Your glorification as a believer is so certain that Paul puts it as if it's already been done. He glorified us. It's such a certain future reality that Paul puts it as if it was already accomplished, a past expression of this indicative. And then verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, he, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. And there we see that promise that if God did not spare his own son, how much more will he not give us, freely give us all things? And so we see these realities expressed through these indicatives that God is working all things together for good. And when he's talking about good, he's talking about spiritual growth. And he talks about what God has done in salvation in the future getting culminating to the, the pinnacle of the future glorification that all believers will experience. It's as good as done. It's coming. Nothing can thwart that. 
And Paul even expands on that as you go further through the end of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's a certain reality. And in this, what shall we say then? If God's for us, if God is committed to us in this way, who can be against us? No one is the answer. And what's the assurance? If he, God, did not spare his own son, how much more will he freely give us all things? And the all things here is all things pertaining to that which pleases him. Sanctification, godliness. We can have confidence that in the midst of any circumstance that we're in, any trial that we face, any hardship that we experience, that God will be faithful in the midst of it. That God is working through all things to bring about his good, eternal purposes. Working together for his plans. So we can have a, a sure confidence that God is working all things. So how do we shepherd our heart with this, promises, with this promise? How should this impact us in life's various circumstances? Well, listen, when a trial comes, a hardship, unexpected hardship, uh, when you're seeking to live with your wife in an understanding way, and you're struggling, you're going, oh, she's going to complain again, or this is going to happen, you're grumbling in your heart. You can go, oh, no, God is using this. God has purpose. How, how dare I? Get caught up in selfishness and discontentment when God's promise is that he is using this current circumstance for good. For me to be more like Jesus. For me to be further sanctified. This is extremely applicable in every circumstance. Maybe barring one. And that's when somebody cuts you off on the road. Then you're totally vindicated to, you know, it, this impacts everything. You don't get the service that you expect from a store. You, you do get cut off on the road or somebody does something silly. Somebody speaks harshly to you at work. Your boss has unreasonable expectations. You have uncertainty about your job. You have hardship with your children. They just, they just won't obey. What about grown children who don't believe? Young children who are wayward and struggling. Spouse who's struggling. Friends, hardship, conflict. Whatever it may be. Your car breaks down again. The water heater explodes in the garage. What can you remind yourself? This is not outside of God's providence. In fact, this circumstance is a tool in the hand of a good God being used for my sanctification. I don't want to run from that. I want to maximize what God would want to do in me through this circumstance. And have a sweet confidence in God's trustworthiness and God's faithful in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves. All things are working together for good. God causes them to work for good. You can just think of Joseph's perspective at the end of Genesis, right? He's sold into slavery by his brothers, abandoned. They leave him for dead. And step by step, he experiences hardship, you know, falsely accused, um, 
of, uh, of going after a, a woman, thrown in prison. God uses all of this. And what does he say to his brothers as they're humbled and broken before him? You meant it for even evil. God meant it. Sometimes that verse is, is misquoted. You meant it for evil. God used it for good. God meant it. God intended. God caused it. God did it. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God is just supremely trustworthy in all of life's circumstances. And so as we think through the promises of God and you think through this reality of God's character and his faithfulness, how do we shepherd our hearts with this truth? Well, in the midst of those temptations, when we are are thinking that something else will satisfy us more than our current circumstances, we remind ourselves, God has intention in this circumstance. In all of the sorrow, in all of the pain, in all of the hardship, in all of the change of expectations that come with those difficulties, God has good intention in it. Well, next, shepherding our heart through anxiety. And these really complement one another, especially the first two, but they all do in many ways. Turn to Luke 12. How do we shepherd our heart through anxiety, through worry? Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. It says, And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life. And we just have to pause right there. When we see a, a prohibition or a command not to do something, Jesus is commanding his disciples, and this command extends to believers beyond his disciples. We understand that contextually. This wasn't something that he was just telling his disciples, and it was a command for them only. But this is for one who has submitted their life to Christ in faith. This is for one who understands and is submitted to God. Don't worry about your life. Do not worry. This is a command from Scripture. And so to worry is to violate a command from God. So worry is a sin, and that is not culturally popular. To say that worrying or anxiety, an anxiousness in your heart out of concern of what awaits you, to say that that is a sin is not popular in our culture. But it is clear from Scripture that worry or anxiety is a sin that we are called to not to, to not worry. So do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor, nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, and here we see a, a promise from God, how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith. 
And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And so as we ponder the, oh, and then do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So as we see these realities in this instruction to not worry we also see the promises of god that he will provide what we need so there's a reason why we don't worry and at the core of worry is faith it is a faith issue it is a belief issue if you struggle which listen we all do in various degrees um if you struggle with anxiety if you struggle with worry it is a faith issue not a circumstance issue Oh, no, no, but you don't understand what's going on. This is a huge business deal. If I get this, it'll change everything for us. It has to go well. In that moment, you are elevating yourself and your wisdom and your assessment over God's determining this must happen because I know what's best. It's a belief issue. It's a faith issue. And so how do you fight worry? How do you fight anxiousness? Well, listen, you need to understand God's trustworthiness, God's faithfulness, God's provisions, God's, God's trustworthy nature to care for his children. I want you to just kind of point out a couple different things here. In verse 28, But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow and is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? There we see the expression and through these birds and through these lilies that, listen, they're cared for. They get what they need and they're just passing. You're his child. How much more you are, and listen, you are valuable, not in the sense that we have a redeeming quality that somehow makes us worth it. Look at how good we were. We are worth God's love. No, we were helpless, godless sinners. We deserved nothing of God's word. But you know what we are? We're made in God's image. And by his grace, we are in his children. And as such, we have a value to him. And that value to him isn't a testimony of, of our innate worth that we conjure up. Like, I'm really worthwhile to God because look at all of my virtues. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm valuable to God because he created me. I'm made in his image, and he has redeemed me by his son's blood, and there is an affection. My valuableness to God is a reflection of his character, not mine. And there's tremendous comfort knowing, oh, he cares for me more than the birds of the sky. What a comfort. What a comfort. There's, there's a truth there. And then look at, look at the end of verse 28. You men of little faith. And that's where we see explicitly, this is a faith issue, as I said before. The fact that they would worry, the fact that they wouldn't think God would provide what they need, is an expression of little faith, of little faith. And so the call here is, don't seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. And listen, a reality in regards to this promise for us in fighting anxiety and worry, God knows what we need better than we do. God knows. 
God's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows what we truly need. How many times have you had one of your children say, Dad, I need this. You're like, you do not need whatever that thing is, another piece of candy. Are you kidding? I need this Pokemon card. No, actually, you need to exhibit self-control. I need to go to the bathroom. Yes, you need to go to the bathroom. Yes, you got that one right. Yes, okay. So that, but God knows our needs better than we do. And what arrogance is there when we dwell in anxiety and worry because we think we know better than God and we think God may not give us what we actually need. The context of this is what you'll wear and what you'll eat and drink. And the point is practical provisions to get caught up in what our day looks like, what our obligations are, what, what the needs of our household are. Oh God, are we, we going to be able to do this? Are we going to be able to? And you get caught up and you start dwelling on those things. And God call, God's call is, don't worry about those things. Pursue godliness. And listen, I have fall, fallen prey to being so overwhelmed by a decision that I give no regard to how I'm making the decision. I just want to figure out yes or no, this or that, up or down, left or right. And I don't give the proper regard. And, I, and I'll get anxious about it. Which is the right one? Oh, what would seeking God look like right now? What would holiness, what would righteousness most look like expressed in my life as I move forward with what's before me? And listen, laying in bed, eyes wide awake, unconstrained thinking, fixating on, well, what if this happens? Well, what if this happens? Well, then what if this happens? What if this happened? That's not righteous. That is an elevation of self to think that you control those things. That is an expression of a lack in the trustworthiness of God. And so what do you do? What do you do in those moments? Lord, you provide for the birds of the air. If I lose my job, help me to lose it in the most godly way possible. If the diagnosis comes back negative, help me to endure this sickness in the most godly way possible. If my child is wayward, help me to love them in the midst of their waywardness in the most godly way possible. If my wife is difficult to live with, help me to love her and endure that difficulty in the most godly way possible. If I'm really difficult to live with, help me to change when I'm difficult to live with. All of those things. You set your mind, Lord, you are trustworthy. You are faithful. Lord, this is what I want. Oh, please help my, please help my presentation to go well tomorrow. Please help it to go well. But Lord, you know what I need better than I do. Help me just to be faithful. I can trust you with my business. I can trust you with my employer. I can entrust you with my employees. God knows what we need. And again, if he didn't spare his own son, how much more will he give us all that we need to be able to navigate those circumstances in a way that's pleasing to him? There's actually hope for victory in these things. 
That's what I want to talk about next. And we're going to move a little bit quicker. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you, but what is common to man. And with the temptation, there's a way of escape. Uh, what a wonderful reality and truth for us in the midst of these things uh, when we struggle to doubt God's faithfulness when we struggle with anxiety in every single moment where we may lack faith or be tempted to lack faith in God there is a way of escape God has provided it we can have confidence in our pursuit of godliness that there is always a way to be holy God provides it God grants it and so whatever temptation you face your wife and kids leave the home and you're alone with your devices. The temptation is fierce. There's a way of escape. You don't have to succumb to it. Pornography, you don't have to succumb to it. Anxiousness, you don't have to succumb to it. Anger, outbursts of anger, discontentment, covetousness. We don't have, none of us, we, in Christ, we don't have to succumb to that. There is strength and power. There is a way of escape that is promised for the believer. And we should be eager, eager to take that. And with that, we looked at this several weeks ago from Philippians 1.6, that God is faithful. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete us. If you are faint-hearted in your battle against sin, keep battling and have confidence God will continue to grow you. Don't give up. Don't throw in, throw in the towel. If you've fallen into sin yet again, I had another episode with my children where I responded harshly. I'm just hopeless in this. No, not if you're in Christ. You have hope. God's faithful. He's going to grow you. He will conform you more into the image of his son. Remember these things. In those moments of despair, I just can't fill in the blank. no. Through God's divine power, you can. We looked at that in Philippians 2, right? Get to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. We can have hope to overcome sins, to battle temptation, to not succumb to, to doubt and to disbelief. And then lastly, I want to look at it. Philippians 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. This is a truth. This is a promise. God will do this by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Your future glorification is certain. There is a day coming when all of the struggles and all of the hardships and all of the difficulties and all of the laboring against sin will cease. This mixed condition will be mixed no more. We will be unmixed. That is fully holy. Only God is holy, holy, holy. But there's a day coming when we will be holy, unable to sin. There is a great comfort for the believer found in that reality. Uh, to know that our future glorification is secured, to know that nothing can separate us from God's love, to know what awaits us in eternity, to know that what we experience now is momentary light affliction in light of or in contrast to the eternal weight of glory. The difficult and hardship that we experience now is just a grain of sand in contrast to the Mount Everest that we will experience in eternity of the glory of Lord, the Lord. 
the, the difficulty, the intensity of our difficulty is nothing compared to the intensity of our joy in our glorification that awaits us in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for these truths. Lord, help us to not prove useless that these wouldn't remain simply knowledge that wouldn't intersect with our lives, but Lord, that we would apply all diligence in our renewing of our mind with these truths, and Lord, that you would be pleased to use that as a means to growing our sanctification, our godliness, and our holiness, that we would be found all the more useful for your purposes. Help us to find joy in obedience. We know that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. All that you have for us to be and to do is ultimately for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that we would find joy in you and joy in obedience and that you would be glorified in all these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, men.